So good afternoon. This is my second time in two weeks speaking on the subject of singleness. Um, it is an important subject and it's probably struck me more in the last fortnight than it has um, for a long time for a few reasons. So there are 7.7 million single households in the UK right now and that's gone up by a million in just the last 20 years. So there are, there are more single people out there living on their own than probably we've known in history. It has been unheard of just 100 years ago. And the makeup of those single people has changed quite a bit as well. And for the first time ever, this here's fascinating fact of the day, the 45 to 64 year old age group is now the highest of those singles, which I'm about to enter in a few short months, which is a bit scary. So not, it's not just young people who haven't got married yet or older people who've maybe lost a partner. There's now this mass of people who have probably been in relationships and are maybe divorced or not with people anymore. So that's what's happening outside the doors of the church. And the church in the UK, here's one reason this is important, the church in the UK is made up of two-thirds women. Now that's a hard fact. That means there's twice as many women going to church as there are men. And that means that if, you want, if women want to marry a person who shares their faith, then you know, that's, that's not going to happen for everybody. And that's something that we really have to grapple with in the church. And I also think that this is an important subject because in my experience, and I've been going to church for a very long time, it can be a bit of a socially awkward place to be as a single person, maybe not here, but in a lot of churches around the country. Um, it's, it's built around family. So we've got some real challenges to think about what does inclusive community look like for us and also what does it mean for our mission to people that we're seeking to reach with the love of Jesus. And it's exciting to me to be able to speak about this as a single person because most of this, the, the talks I've ever heard on this passage have been given by married men, no offence, married men, <laughs> um, you know, who bring a particular perspective and I'm probably going to bring a different, I recognise I'll probably bring a different kind of bias into um, my reflections on this, but it's good to bring a little bit of balance. So you've obviously been looking at 1 Corinthians, you've been looking at chapter 7, just in terms of a touch of context for those of you who weren't here last week. Um, Paul starts right at the beginning saying, concerning the matters about which you wrote, so all of what we're going to look at today is a letter that Paul has written to the Corinthian church in response to some questions that they had. And it's, it means that there's not lots, it's not like Paul's really clear view on here's all the things I think about marriage and singleness. We have to work a bit harder to try and figure out what he was saying. And the first question right at the start of the chapter is around married, particularly looking at married people who were, they'd stopped, they basically were living as celibate people even though they were still married, because in some way they thought this was making them a bit more spiritual. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. You know, that is, so that, I'm sure you probably touched on some of that last week. So that, that's how the chapter starts. And if you want to open your Bibles, it'd be great if you could, we're going to look at a lot of verses in this chapter, so it'd be really good if you could have it in front of you on your phone or whatever. We're going to start 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to look at verses 6 to 9, and then from 23 to 35. So Paul goes on, and after talking about marriage, he starts to look at unmarried, engaged, and widowed people. So all, when I talk about single today, I'm talking about all different categories of singleness. Basically, his message to them all is pretty much the same. So 1 Corinthians 7, 
We're going to start at verse 6, if you've got it in front of you. This is the English Standard Version. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Then down to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one by the Lord who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I'd spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, so I want us to look, we're going to look at three different questions. Can we stick those on? This is our three questions. First of all, what is Paul actually saying to the single believers in Corinth? And then really importantly, what of that applies to us today? You know, was this just for them or is it, does it have something to say to us as well? And then what are the practical implications? I really want the word of God to speak for itself today. And I I want to confess as well that I do have one agenda, and it's found in verse 35, if you've got it in front of you, and that's to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's Paul's point of what he's talking about here. So the first question, what is Paul saying to the single people in Corinth? Well, he's saying to them that singleness is better for the single people. He says in verse 7, I wish that all were as I am. Verse 8 To the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good for them to remain single. 26 to 27, in view of the present distress, it's good good for a person to remain as he is. Now this might seem strange for us. These are quite radical words that Paul is saying. He is clearly saying that if you are single people in Corinth, it's better for you to stay that way. Now to balance that, he's also saying to the married people, if you're married, it's better to stay that way. And I just want to highlight a few things from this. The first one is that singleness is plan A for the single people. It's not plan B. It's not to be pitied or despised, but it's something to be sought after. It's a good thing, Paul says in verse 8. That means it's beautiful, it's lovely, it's advantageous. I'd hazard a guess that there's not many people sitting in the room right now going, yes, amen, to what Paul said there. But that's what he said. 
He's, the next thing is Paul recognises that singleness is a gift. He says in verse 7, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And before you quickly jump to the conclusion in your head that, well, that's not a gift for me, I don't want that gift, stop and just think for a moment about what Paul is saying about it being a gift from God. It's a spiritual endowment, a grace gift, the same word that Paul uses in chapter 12 when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit and he's saying to people to eagerly desire them. You know, it's a present from God, it's not a punishment. And I kind of wonder, if Paul is saying this is a good gift and we don't see that, then what is it that we're missing? What did Paul see that we don't? Also important to see from that that being content as a single person is not about gritting your teeth or about being particularly virtuous. It's something that is because of the grace of God by the Holy Spirit in our lives. But Paul, of course, does acknowledge you that this isn't a gift that everybody has. The next point I want to make in this is that Paul does say that there are some exceptions. So yes, singleness is good for single people, except in verse 9, if you cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So singleness is best unless you're going to be burning with passion and then it's better to get married than be in that kind of miserable state. And I think it's really interesting that this is what he focuses on here. There's the kind of sexual side of it. Um, because most of the conversations I have with people, of my friends, many of them who are single, they talk much more about loneliness than they do about burning with passion. And I do wonder whether, I know the context of the whole chapter, Paul's talking about sex, but there's also something about, I think, in, this is the, the whole loneliness thing is much more of a challenge for us in our society and the kind of fractured nature of how we live than it was in Paul's day. They had a much more kind of cohesive, they lived in extended families, they didn't move about. So we've got, we've got maybe some different challenges as well to look at. And is this just Paul's opinion? So he says in verse 25, I don't have any commands from the Lord here, but this is his judgment as one who is trustworthy. So does that mean it's less important what Paul is saying? Well, you know, what most commentators think that Jesus is say, what that Paul's saying here is that Jesus didn't speak directly into this. But Paul is still speaking as led by the Holy Spirit, and his words here are no less inspired than any, any of his other scriptures. But it is important to note that Paul's language in this passage is much more tentative than lots of his other letters and his characteristic. Paul normally just says it straight, but he uses words here like, I think, I want to spare you, I, I like, I'd like you to be like this, I'm saying this for your own good. It's a much more pastoral heart that Paul is speaking out of. Interestingly, the strongest um, message that he gives in this, the strongest language that he uses are verse 27 when he says, if you don't have a wife, don't look for one. There's a challenge. So that's what Paul was saying to the single people in Corinth. I guess the big question for us is that what if that applies to us today? And to look at that, we really need to understand what, are we, what were Paul's reasons behind this message that he was giving? Well, the first reason he gives is he says, in light of the present distress or crisis, in verse 26, because of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Now, we know from Acts 18 that the church in Corinth was birthed in a place of persecution um, from the Jews, and they were likely still experiencing um, a lot of persecution. And the word used here for distress or crisis is 
similar to the language that is used around the, the type of trouble that would be experienced before Jesus comes back. So, you know, they were, they were experiencing some serious stuff. And Paul was saying to them into that context, look, in light of all the trouble you've already got because of everything you're experiencing in life, you're just going to add to your trouble if you get married in this context. And he wants to spare them that. Jeremiah had a similar call from God. God said to Jeremiah not to take a wife, specifically because of the the judgment and distress that God was about to pour out onto uh, the nation of Israel. So though we we could say that although this applies to the millions of believers who are being persecuted around the world right now, maybe this doesn't apply to us. We're living in a time of relative peace. So I think you could argue that that part part of of Paul's message perhaps isn't so applicable to us. So far, so good, I hear you say. Paul's second reason is in verse 29. He says, this is what I mean, brothers, the the appointed time has grown very short. So did Paul think incorrectly that Jesus was coming back any minute? Is he saying here, look, Jesus is coming, there's absolutely no point in you getting married? Some people definitely believe that, and I've heard that preached myself. I don't think that's what he's saying here. If you look at his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul is talking there about, there's lots, you know, they were worried that Jesus had come and they'd missed it. And he said, no, there's lots of signs that need to take place. Don't worry, it's not happened and you'll know it when it does. He also says to the people who were using that as an excuse to not work, that they should go and get jobs and stop being so lazy. So I think that Paul isn't of the mindset of thinking, give up life because Jesus is coming any minute. Paul's not talking about the chronos time here, the passing of hours. The word is kairos. I'm sure some of you will have heard that before. It's the appointed time. The critical time, Paul's talking about the end of the ages, which in his mind began with the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit on the church. He says to them in chapter 10 of the same book, verse 11, we are those on whom the end of the ages has come, present tense. So it's the kairos time that's growing short. And what I believe Paul is saying there is that the future has broken into the present already. The kingdom of God has come right now, present tense, okay, in part, but it has come. And this changes everything. In Paul's mind, this absolutely changed everything. This is what they've been waiting for for generations in Israel. And he's saying the time has happened, the future has broken into the present. The old rules don't apply any longer. You know, that has implications. You can see in the passage there in verse 29, it's got implications not just for their marital status, but for everything in their lives. From now on, let those who have lives, wives live as though they've none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I mean, they're hard words, aren't they? Paul's already talked about the issue of married couples not having sex and they should live as happy married people. So he's not meaning that. He's not meaning to live as single people, but he is looking for a kingdom perspective on all the core issues of life, on marriage and singleness, on joy and sorrow and possessions and how we deal with them. In fact, every single interaction that they had with the world was to be shaped by the fact that the kingdom of God has come and everything has changed, that we are people 
of the last days. This isn't some kind of asceticism. It's, you know, Paul is talking about being a certain kind of detachment from the things of the world so that we can prioritize a greater attachment to Jesus. He's talking about our priorities, the things that we run after and long for in the depths of our heart. Does this apply to us here today? I would say absolutely it does. Surely we too are living in those last days. Surely we too are those people upon whom the kingdom of God has broken in. And we also should be living according to these new rules with a kingdom perspective and it should shape everything that we are and everything that we do in this life and how we interact with the world. So that brings us to the third reason why that Paul gives the single Corinthians for staying single. And I want to read out this passage from verse 32. He said, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Again, I just want you to hear the heart of Paul the pastor in this passage. He's trying to give them practical advice for their own good to benefit them, not to hold them back, not to cause them to suffer or make them miserable or lonely for their whole lives. It was about securing their undivided devotion to Jesus. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you can't be wholehearted in following Jesus if you're married, but Paul is being really practical here. He's not saying one is more virtuous than the other. He's just saying if you are married, practically speaking, you have obligations to your family that are going to, take, they're going to divide your attention. And if you're a single person, you don't have those same obligations and you are more free to pursue all the things of God and your relationship with him. It's purely about practical advantage here. I think it's really interesting. We can see how maybe that's to God's benefit, but what Paul is saying is this is for your benefit. Why did he think that? I think Paul had encountered Jesus in such a profound way that he just knew that everything else was rubbish. He says that in Philippians 3, doesn't he? I consider everything rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Paul also knows that marriage is temporary. Jesus was really clear on that. Marriage is for this life. It points towards the greater relationship that Christ has with his church. He's like, you've already got the fullness. You've already got the, the heavenly reality, the relationship with Jesus. So you don't need to be all tied up with pursuing the earthly thing that points to that. He wants them to have an eternal perspective. And Paul also knows that when these believers stand before God and give an account for their lives, in no way are they going to regret any decisions they make which are helping them pursue wholeheartedness in their relationship with him. So the question is, is this contextual or does this apply to us? I almost hardly even need to answer that question. How could Paul's desire for our undivided devotion to Jesus be any less than it was for the people of Corinth. Surely these words, inspired by the Spirit of God, apply to us as much today. I wonder if even more, with the distractions, the multitude of distractions that we have, 
on our time and our attention in 21st century Scotland compared to the relatively simple lives that they were living, they, they were living then. You know, what, what would Paul's words be to us? Maybe they'd be even more passionate, maybe they'd be even more radical. I absolutely believe that, that these words have something to say to us in our generation. So just to summarise that part of it, Paul is saying to the single people in Corinth, it's better for you if you're able to stay single by the grace of God because of the persecution that they were facing, because of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, and so they could be undivided in their devotion to Jesus. The first one of those is arguably not so applicable to us, but certainly the second and the third are, and we have to take these words seriously. Now, just a couple of things for the sake of balance before I move into thinking about implications. Paul's not anti-marriage. I'm sure you heard lots of good things about that last week. You know, he said it's not a sin to get married. I just quite like how that's put. <laughs> verse 9, you know, he says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And in verse 38, referring to betrothed people, you know, if you marry your betrothed, you'll do well. But if you refrain from marrying them, you'll do even better. Also, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says a quite different message to the young widows there. He actually says to them it's better for them to get married because they were basically going out and being full of passion, being gossips and busybodies and time wasters and then depending on the church. And his word to them in their context was, no, you should get married and just keep busy with your family and you know, probably have a better chance of living a holy life. So there's definitely something about context and we need to weigh up our context and bring that before God and really be open to what God is saying to us. I don't see these things contradicting. It's really, um, I'm sure Paul, um, will, God will use those words to speak to you in your situation. So I just want to spend a wee bit of time thinking about practicalities of this. What does all this mean for us? The first thing and really probably the main point is can we let our singleness be about undivided devotion to Jesus? This only really makes sense if we by experience know that Jesus is better than anything the world has to offer. If it's not for that it just sounds you know that a call to singleness, a challenge to that just sounds a bit ridiculous or far too difficult and I just want to boldly testify that my experience is that he really is better. He really is worth it. I've been on a, a really interesting journey over the last 10 years of discovering the passion of Jesus' heart for me, discovering his, the depth of his affection, and it's, it's changed everything. The more I've discovered the desire that he has for me, the more it just changes what I want out of life. And it's something he's done in me. It's not something I've worked up or even tried to do. And I'm very much still on that journey. But I've just known time after time of just being undone by the revelation of his love and of his jealousy over my heart and of, of his desire that I'd be wholly his. And I really am speaking to people who are single here today. Why not make your singleness, for however long it lasts, be about wholeheartedness, be about undivided devotion to Jesus? Why not let his deep affection for you define who you are, rather than being defined by your marital status? And you know, if you don't know Jesus, if what I'm saying sounds foreign to you today, if you don't know him like that, then the biggest thing that you can take away from what I'm saying 
is, is that you set your heart, whatever age you're at, whatever circumstances you're in, that you will set your heart to pursue him until you do. And that's a lifelong journey. As I've allowed the love of Jesus to define me, it's really influenced a lot of the decisions I've made in my life about relationships. I decided to become serious about God in my late teens, and I decided at that age that I wasn't going to go out with anybody that didn't add to my relationship with God rather than take away from it. And, you know, maybe I'm still single because of that. I I really don't know, but... I don't regret it for an absolute second. You know, I don't want anything to get in the way of the good thing that I've got going on with God. I don't want anybody to hold me back from running as hard after him as I possibly can. Good grief, there is enough challenges in life to do that. And, you know, I've I've known so many people, and I know so many people now who have spouses who um, don't share their faith, and maybe there's some people here who are in that situation. And that is a hard and painful place to be. And I know that they themselves would say, avoid that if you possibly can. Being defined by the love of Jesus has protected me over the last few decades from some pretty sticky situations. Um, I told a story a couple of weeks ago when I, about a friend of mine being on holiday in the Canaries when I was in, about a long time ago, I was in my early 20s and I was on holiday. We were in a bar one night and my friends and I were being chatted up by these two guys and, you know, it was all very nice. I'm sure lots of people know what I'm talking about. We were having a good time. We were having fun. We spent the evening chatting to these guys, and it was all getting a bit affectionate, etc. And, you know, I went to the loo, and I remember having, hearing, like, really clearly having this moment of the Holy Spirit saying to me, this is not who you are. This is not who you are. And I was thinking about Joseph. This is, it sounds like a funny story now. I was thinking about Joseph. Remember when he runs away from Potiphar's wife? If you know that story, he flees from temptation. I didn't leave without my clothes, just to say. But, you know, he runs away because he's just like, this is me. He flees from the place of temptation. That's what I was, I went out like a crazy lady out of this toilet in this bar and back. And I was thinking, I need to flee, grab my bag and all my stuff. Tried to grab my friend who wasn't coming. I left her there. I went back to my apartment and just had this strong sense of God saying, that's not who you are. And, you know, that's happened to me time after time. I've lived in lots of cities around the UK. I've worked in lots of different places and had lots of moments where I could have made wrong decisions and I've not always made right ones, but I've known the Holy Spirit saying to me and I've, and I've had to listen to that voice, you know, of him saying, this is not who you are. I want my behaviour and my life to be defined and shaped by the fact that I'm the beloved of Jesus. And, you know, by the grace of God, may that continue. I also just want to say, you know, will you, will you seize the opportunity that singleness brings for wholeheartedness? I remember reading the only book I've ever read on singleness. It was about 10 or 12 years ago. I was living in Sheffield and I just remember reading this. I don't really like those kind of books because they're so wishy-washy on the whole. But I remember reading this book and it talked about this. It was saying, are, are you living life to the full as a single person? I remember thinking at the time, I'm not sure that I am, but God, by your grace, will you help me to do that? And a couple of years later, I had packed up my life, moved out my flat and put everything in a couple of suitcases and and moved to America and spent a year at a place called the International House of Prayer in Kansas City and went on a really exciting adventure with God. And I, I really just think, okay, seizing the opportunity that singleness presents, it's going to look different for everybody. 
But will you let it be for God rather than just about living it up for yourself? If I hadn't been single for the last few decades, you know, I've, as I say, I've moved around. I used to work for the Royal Mail before and in various management positions before I worked for Tier Fund and moved around lots of cities, had really interesting jobs, lots of management leadership experience. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Okay, sometimes it required a lot of time and energy that I probably wouldn't have been able to give had I had a family. Being single meant I could move to America and I spent three years not working and seeking the face of God in a rather unusual season, not needing to provide for anybody but myself. Being single has allowed me to travel to all sorts of parts of the world that I never would have been able to. I've been in so many experiences, met so many people. I'm doing a master's part-time at the moment in theology and just letting God blow my mind in lots of different ways. And I just, I think it just means I can embrace the spontaneity of life without needing to phone somebody and tell them when I'm coming home. And there's so many, of, so much of that just feels alive to me. But most importantly, being single for me gives me the opportunity to spend time with Jesus. And the best part of my day is when I get up early in the morning and I get to be in his presence. And you know, I had this moment a few weeks ago, it kind of sounds funny, but it was really true, of just being like, Jesus, thank you so much that I get to be here with you, rather than having to shovel Rice Krispies down somebody's throat and get them out the door to school. And I'm sure there's a few people in the room who know, know what that feels like. I know that's what my married friends, that's, that, that's the reality and the challenges of their life. And I get to get up in the quietness and be with the Lord and let him shape me and mould me into his image. Now, I'm not trying to pretend that there's not downsides and there's not challenges to being single, but could it be that we're so focused on them that we're losing sight of what it means, what Paul actually meant when he said that singleness is a gift? And maybe for you today, you need to decide to seize the opportunity that singleness presents, rather than focusing on what you don't have. Just to say a little bit more about focus. You know, Paul, as I said before, in uh, verse 27, charges them, if you don't have a wife or a husband, then don't seek for one. Now, you need to come to your own conclusions before God about this. But for me personally, I'm not actively seeking a husband. I'm not doing the Christian dating websites thing. I'm not going deliberately to hang out where I think single Christians are. You know, I'm not living like a hermit either. I've got a very full life. You know, I've lived, a, I've lived in lots of different places, been at lots of different churches. I'm at my third Bible college. You know, I've, I've met loads of Christian people in my journey. I'm not saying that to be virtuous in any way. I'm trying to be kind to myself. I want to be careful with how I spend my time and my energy and what I'm thinking about. Because if I get preoccupied with this, which could easily happen, I'm just going to miss life and it's going to pass me by. I've got so many friends who are similar age to me who are talking like life's still about to happen. I'm like, you're in your mid-40s. What have you been doing for the last 20 years? You know, don't, don't get so caught up that you're missing life. I know I can so easily lose the contentment that I've got if I really start to focus on this. So for me, this is about self-kindness. I try and guard my heart quite carefully. Not perfectly, but I, I do my best. So that what that means is, for me, this isn't something I particularly talk to God about a lot. It's not like number one thing on my prayer list. God and I are fairly settled about it. 
that if marriage is something that he has for me, then I trust that that's something that, that he would bring about. But other than that, I'm going to go on with living my life the best that I can and serving him. Of course, he gets the occasional lament when things, you know, when I face situations of pain or difficulty. I was in a situation once not that long ago with a whole load of leaders, Christian leaders, and everyone was going round and saying, introducing themselves, talking about their family. They all, I was the only single person out of about 20-odd people. And it got round to me, I was thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to say? And I just made a joke. I just was like, you know, no husband, no, pa- no kids, no pets, no plants. And it, it was my coping mechanism. And I kind of got away from those moments and go, oh, Jesus, help me. You know, it's, it is painful. But that's a place to just press in more to his love. I'm not going to let that define me. I just, that, that's an opportunity to just allow him to minister to me and then to move on. And I guess maybe one of the areas for you to evaluate today, for us all to evaluate, is how much time and energy are you spending thinking about finding a life partner? And I'm not saying that to condemn anybody, but just maybe to invite you to be kinder to yourself. The more you focus on something and put your time and energy into it and you don't get it, the more it messes with your head and with your heart. I wonder if we put that physical and emotional energy into seeking and pursuing God in his kingdom, maybe we would feel a little bit better about this whole thing. The next point I want to make is just in terms of implications is about community and the need to have a community around us. In no way am I saying here that, you know, we don't need each other. We're made to be part of families and part of communities and in relationship. And God said in Genesis, it's not good for humanity to be alone and he meant it. And I'm really thankful for the friends and family that I've got around that love me and I can share my heart with. It doesn't mean that as a single person, I don't long for more of that. I don't long for a more authentic community to be doing this journey of life and faith with. I do know that the single friends that I've got definitely seem to long for that more than the married friends. And I think that's something a real challenge for us as church to think about. I think that we have responsibility on both sides. I think that you know, there's a lot of single people that we can do. Are we, are we joining small groups? Are we practicing hospitality, having people over? It takes a bit more work to build community and have good friendships as a single person. You know, so are we doing that? Are we, are we making the most of that? But I do think as church, there's a real opportunity for us to rethink what community looks like. And I can see you're obviously starting to really do that here. One of the things that I think is really important is to make sure that we've got single people on our leadership teams, on our preaching rotas, our serving rotas, because if it's only ever married men, I don't have an issue with married men, but that's what church is run by on the whole in our country. If it's only ever the same types of people who are making all the decisions and shaping what church life looks like, then nothing's going to change. I love here, I love that this is something really different in the mixture and variety of people that are coming. I think that that's a real, you know, in terms of us building community that we feel loved and a part of as well as a place that people can come in who are looking for a sense of belonging. We've, we've really got some reimagining to do about community. And the last thing I want to say is just around this being a costly offering. Maybe you're here today and you, know, you don't feel like you've got the grace to be single. And Paul would maybe say, you know, it's better to be married than to burn with passion or be miserable in some other way, and yet you haven't found somebody yet, or maybe you had someone, but that relationship broke off. 
as I said earlier, statistically speaking, you know, the women and men ratio in the church is not equal. There's some that I know that that's a place of pain for a lot of people. This desperate longing to be with someone and yet not having found them. And it's kind of hard for me to speak into this in some ways because I feel like I do have the grace. And I don't know whether I have the grace because that's something that God just gave me or whether he's given me more grace as I've pursued him and found my identity more and more in him. And maybe it's a bit of both. But what I do know that is we find healing and comfort for that pain in the presence of Jesus. So seeking him is absolutely crucial in all this. I also know that as single people, we don't have a monopoly on hardship. And sometimes it can feel a little bit like that in the church. You know, I'm I'm surrounded by friends who life has not worked out as they expected. Whether that's that they never haven't found a life partner, whether it's married people who don't have children, or they wanted more children than they have, or they've lost children, or lost loved ones, or, or have been through divorce situations. You know, life is full of people whose expectations haven't worked out the way they, they, they thought they would. And, you know, we have to grapple with the, the pain of that, the confusion that comes of thinking, well, God could have done something, but he didn't. But I absolutely believe that these are the moments where we really get to choose that God is still good, that he still loves us, and that we are going to worship him regardless because he's worth it. Those are the moments to press in, not to draw back from him. And I, I really believe that those are, that, that offering of love that we can give him and those pain, from those painful places, that means more to him than, you know, when we're all feeling great and we're, we're loving him and worshipping him. It's, it, love out of an overflow of pain is a really costly, beautiful offering to him. And maybe if that's you today, maybe all you need to simply do in our final worship song is, is just to love Jesus right in the middle of your pain and allow him to come in and to bring comfort and to bring healing. He truly is worth it. Let's pray. Father, you desire each one of us to know us more, to have us closer. And as we continue to reflect on what we've heard today, I pray you'd come and minister to each person in this room. Whatever our circumstances are, Father, you know our areas of pain. You know what's a challenge. You know our joys. In everything, Lord, would you help us to be wholehearted in our pursuit of you. And I pray for a deeper revelation of the passion of your heart, the desire of your heart, Lord, for for us. And that we would be people who set our hearts on pursuing you through all the ups and downs of life whatever our circumstances are. May I sit in the name of Jesus. Amen.